please be seated and turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 1329. 1329 in your pew Bible. Page 1329. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, Uh, we will be reading verses 15 through 20, verses 15 through 20. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatsoever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Today we look at Matthew 18, today looking at the power, having already seen the purpose and the procedure of church discipline, today looking at the power of church discipline, as Jesus instructs his disciples regarding these things. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. How many times have we heard that? Is that really true? No. No, it's not. It isn't true. And indeed, as we shall see today, words can cut and can hurt. Sometimes in wicked ways, sometimes in powerful but positive ways ways that actually show forth love, but are designed to get our attention. And that's what we're going to see today with regard to this. Now, I had preached two sermons on church discipline back in May. This is now the third in this series. I, I mentioned back then, I'll mention again, this is not one of the favorite topics to be preached on, but it is a necessary topic. We've already looked at the purpose of church discipline. 
which is, first of all, reconciliation and restoration of the one who is in error. Secondly, was bringing the person back. Secondly, the purity of the church. And thirdly, the glory and honor of God, especially the Lord Jesus Christ as king and head of the church. And I gave an illustration, you may recall, several months ago, of a rotten apple in a bowl of apples. Okay? So I want you to think of a rotten apple in a bowl of apples. Well, if you, so if you have an apple there that's got a spot in it, you don't want to throw out the whole apple. What do you do? You cut out that spot that has the problem for the sake of the apple, right? So as to preserve the apple as a whole. And so in a similar way, church discipline is to help the person who is going astray, who has that, that bruise spot. Secondly, what happens if you have a bowl of apples and you have one rotten apple? What's going to happen to the rest of the apples? They're obviously all going to get rotten. And therefore, for the good and the purity of the church as a whole, you have to make sure you take care of that situation. And thirdly, as you think of this bowl of apples, think of it in a beautiful, um, a beautiful bowl, nice silver bowl, let's say. And let's say it's in the house of a, of a rich person. So you go into the house and, you know, everything is very nicely decorated. And here you have this bowl of apples. But let's say all those apples are rotten. It's a rotten mess. Well, that's not to the honor of the owner, is it? And so church discipline, then, is important for the glory and honor of God and especially the Lord Jesus Christ, the king and head of the church. So those are the purposes, or that's the threefold purpose of church discipline. Call the person back, then the purity of the church and the glory and honor of Christ. And then we looked at the procedures of church discipline. We also mentioned that discipline is positive as well as negative. So the word discipline is, I mean, we can use this in a positive way. Uh, for example, we can talk about um, uh, physical discipline. Like if you are, uh, I don't know, maybe a football player. You need that discipline, not a negative thing, but you need that training. Or a basketball player, or softball, or whatever. So there's a positive side. We talk about being disciplined in our lives, having our act together. And so there's a positive as well as a negative side. Discipline, in a general terms, means shaping and molding. And, but what do you do then if someone has offended you? Or if, if, if you are offended by a fellow believer, what do you do? First, you go to him privately. And you confront that person lovingly, gently, humbly. But you talk with him, first of all. And then let's say that person doesn't repent. Well, then secondly, you take one or two others with you. And then finally, you bring the matter to the church, which, as we looked at, means the elders of the church, the rulers of the church, so that uh, they are the ones who rule in the church, including the exercise of discipline. So that's the purpose, and then the procedures of church discipline, and now today, the power, the power of church discipline. Now, did you notice here 
um, uh, did you notice here the idea of the keys of the kingdom? The idea of the keys of the kingdom. We find this, for example, back in a similar passage in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against you, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And so we have the idea of the keys of the kingdom, particularly with regard to binding and loosing. So what are these keys? Well, they are two things, basically. First of all, doctrine, teaching. And in a special way, as we see from Matthew 16, in a special way, the apostles as a whole, not just Peter, were commissioned by Christ to lay down the church's teaching, to do so by example, but also by the writing of Scripture. We don't have any apostles today. We don't have any uh, new scriptures being written. No, the foundation has been laid in terms of the apostles and those prophets of the New Testament. And then secondly, in terms of preaching, that is to say, the proclamation of the gospel. And that proclamation of the gospel, that giving out of that good news, unlocks heaven's gates. And, of course, that proclamation of the gospel centers in Jesus, his person and work. Who is he? He is God come in the flesh. He is the one who was born of a virgin. He is the one who lived a sinless life. He is the one who died on the cross for our sins. He is the one who rose again from the dead, as we celebrated last week with regard to the memorial service for uh, our dear departed brother, Larry Kerr. And, of course, Jesus is also ascending to heaven, sitting at the right hand of God. So his person, his work, it all centers in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit then takes that proclaimed word to a person's heart. And it is liberating. You see, why the concept of keys? Well, think of a door. You need a key to unlock a door. Or think of handcuffs. You need a key to unlock unlock the handcuffs. And so, in a similar way then, the captive, the one who is a prisoner, prisoner to his own sin, is set free by the liberating word of the gospel. This message goes out. It's going out right now. It goes out from this pulpit and from thousands of pulpits around the world. Notice the power then is not in the person that gives the message. The power is in the word of God. And the power, therefore, is in the gospel. And so doctrine, first of all, but secondly, discipline. And discipline is related to doctrine. First of all, discipline must be based upon true teaching. It must be based upon true teaching. So if a church... Uh, were to proclaim something is outside the word of God, tries to discipline someone on that basis, that discipline is false. And so that's why doctrine is so foundational in terms of discipline. It's based upon true teaching. It is the application of correct teaching. Both doctrine and discipline are rooted 
in the Word of God. And so the key then is turned to bind or to loose. To bind, as in captivity, to loose in terms of setting free. So the question then is how this key of discipline is to be used today. Well, first of all, what is meant by church discipline? What is its nature? Well, it is spiritual in nature. Spiritual in nature. It is not uh, bound to this world. It is not physical. The church's jurisdiction is totally moral and spiritual in character. The church cannot threaten people with fines, with corporal punishment, physical punishment, with imprisonment. A certain small city-state near Rome, Italy, notwithstanding to the contrary. No, the church persuades people. The church seeks to persuade people of the truth with words, not with physical force. And so it is, it is through words. It is verbal. It is through words. And of course, there are several kinds of censure then used by the church. Against officers, there can be suspension, which is a temporary barring of the person from exercising that office. Or deposition, stripping that person of the office, a defrocking, a divestiture. But with regard to any church member, what are the steps or what are the, what are the, the particular censures that are available? First of all, admonition, which is largely encouraging, but it's like a little slapping of the wrist, but not literal, of course, but admonition. And then stronger, rebuke. You didn't hear it the first time. Now we're rebuking you. Thirdly, suspension from communion, from the sacrament. And finally, excommunication. And that's what we see here in Matthew chapter 18. And notice what it says here, verse 17. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a Gentile, a heathen, and a tax collector. In other words, basically saying don't have normal dealings with that person. And we find this in other scripture passages, this concept. In Titus uh, chapter 3, for example. In Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. In the little epistle of 2 John, 2 John, verses 10 and 11. 2 John, verses 10 and 11. The apostle says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine with regard to Christ, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. And so, and even with regard to our scripture today from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. From 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you can 
again see that where there is this estrangement, if you will, so that no longer when a person is excommunicated, no longer is there that same fellowship that you used to have with that person. Now, my friends, you might wonder why, why would the church ever excommunicate somebody? I want you to think about this just for a second. The ultimate censure must be available, otherwise there could be no discipline at all. Now, this is true of a sports team. This is true of a club. This is true of a school classroom. If you don't have the ability to exclude a person from the team who's misbehaving, who's talking back to the coach or whatever, you wouldn't have a team very much longer, would you? The whole thing would fall apart. Or a school classroom, or just even a garden club, whatever it may happen to be. And so the ultimate censure of cutting off must be available Otherwise, there could be no discipline at all. By the way, think about this in terms of the um, uh, in, in terms of the other spheres. In in the sphere of the church, we have the keys of the kingdom. What do we have at the home? The rod, right? The paddle, the board of education, as our parents used to say, right? Of instruction, the rod. What about the civil government? the sword. But here's the thing. The civil government doesn't always execute people. And certainly, the rod doesn't always have to be used in the home. But the lesser penalties then, excluding a child from privileges or fining somebody, for example, uh, in terms of a penalty, the lesser penalties are bound up in the ultimate penalties in terms of the rod and the sword and the keys. And the ultimate or the capital is for really bad things or for a refusal to submit. Now what then is the effect of discipline? This comes to the power of it. You see, we talk about discipline in the church being spiritual. But do not downplay the church's jurisdiction because it is spiritual. Do not underestimate the power of ideas and of moral suasion of trying to persuade people. And even of giving critical, critical penalties, expressing those by words. And especially when the Holy Spirit accompanies that pronouncement. The very power of church discipline is one reason why people avoid it, because it can be frightening. And it is also why such care and caution must be used. Church discipline in its formal sense should be a rare thing. And it should be done only by those who know what they're doing. If we had, it, uh, if we had a, a glass of nitroglycerin right here, you know what nitroglycerin is? It's a high explosive. You put it in a clay base and you make like dynamite, TNT. 
but by itself, a little bit of, of, uh, of nitroglycerin, if we, if we had a glass right here of that, and I were to drop it, not many of us would survive. I mean, it's a very high explosive, okay? And that's why people need to know what they're doing and need to make sure that they are careful as they handle this precisely because it is powerful. Or we could say it this way, church discipline is spiritual and therefore it is powerful precisely because of its spiritual character. The recognition and occasion of the decree by heaven. The, it is, it is the recognition and ratification of heaven's decree. Now you may have noticed when I read this text that I, I changed the wording just a little bit in terms of the translation. I changed the wording. In the King James or New King James, it will say whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. But really, that's not quite accurate. It should be. It's, the, the Greek uses what is called the perfect passive, which means that it, it deals with something, with an event, which continues on in terms of its effects. But also, it's passive. So in other words, it's not as if the church exercises discipline and then heaven follows suit. It's the opposite. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. It's not that the church makes a decision just on its own, but the decision that the church makes is to reflect what heaven has obviously already decreed. The church is not infallible. It can and does make mistakes occasionally in both directions. Sometimes the church may open the doors, may unlock, may loose, and really they should remain bound, and vice versa. And furthermore, the church itself is not able to grant or withhold salvation. Nevertheless, when discipline is carried out here on earth, it by and large parallels what has been done in heaven, what has been determined by God. And furthermore, let me note that all forms of discipline, of punishment, serve as reminders of the final judgment. John Calvin, the theologian, said that the execution of criminals was a foretaste of God's judgment of the wicked on the last day. And so excommunication in a similar way paints the picture of eternal judgment for us. It paints the picture. That's why God has given, one of the reasons why God has given it to the church. It paints the picture of eternal judgment. Church discipline, my friends, is serious business. There is power behind it. But this power then, this power of uh, discipline with regard to the keys of the kingdom, notice 
that this power really relates to the presence of Christ. That's the point. The, notice the fact of his presence back in, in, uh, in uh, verse 19, where he says, where two or three are gathered together in my name. Now, we often think of that in terms of worship, and we may have a very slim crowd next week. We've got some folks that are traveling, and that's great. But even if we had only two or three, I expect we'll have more than that, but even if we had only two or three, that's okay, because we'd be gathered in the name of Christ, and Christ promises to be present with us in that time of worship. But he also, in this context then, promises to be with his people with regard to the exercise of discipline. There am I in the midst of them. Just like the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament tabernacle. When the glory of God showed up in the midst, so now spiritually, with the eyes, with the spiritual eyes of discernment, we understand that Jesus is present with us in a very real and special way. And his presence then confirms and seals the promise of verse 19 that God the Father will do according to the prayers of his saints as they are gathered in Jesus' name to effect the discipline. If two or three agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. You see, Jesus himself is present in his judgment. It is his justice which he himself is measuring out. He is the judge, and the officers, the elders, are merely his servants, his ministers, carrying out his sentence. In Psalm 82, we read that God stands in his own congregation and he judges. In Psalm 101, which we'll be singing at the close of the service, David, the forerunner of King Jesus, cuts off evildoers from the city of the Lord. I mentioned a moment ago about 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in verse 4, we read, Paul says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. My friends, it is Jesus himself who walks among the candlesticks, Revelation 2 and 3, judging in the midst of the congregations, and he's judging in our midst as well. And But Jesus' power, his presence, is there also with regard to comfort. Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Discipline is never pleasant. It is never fun. It is never easy. But Christ promises to comfort his people as they exercise discipline. He is there in their midst. Now, two observations and then two points of application. Number one, by way of observation, discipline is a mark of the church. Without it, you don't have a true church. Matter of fact, without it, 
in any organization. You don't, you don't have that organization unless you have discipline. But it, you certainly do not have a true church without the exercise of discipline. It's impossible. Secondly, by way of observation, church discipline serves as both comfort and warning. There is comfort. And there should be comfort for you knowing that the church cares enough about you, about each of you, to exercise discipline and to protect you from false practices and false doctrines. Remember, one of the purposes of discipline is for the purity and preservation of the church. So there's comfort, but there's also warning for those in the church. The warning comes, walk properly. Walk as you ought to walk, lest the keys of the kingdom be turned against you. There's also warning for those outside the church as we're reminded that there is no ordinary possibility of salvation outside of the visible manifestation of the body of Christ. That doesn't mean this church or this denomination, but in general terms, if you're a follower of Christ, you must be part of his church. Jesus has established the church and its discipline. And in the walls of the church, you hear proclaimed the good news of salvation. Within her organization, you are admitted to the sealing ordinances, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so in terms of application, I would say one major thrust here, listen to and submit to the Lord Jesus. Listen to and submit to the Lord Jesus. To despise the church is to despise its leader, Jesus. Isaiah 22, speaking prophetically of Christ, says, The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open, and no one shall shut, and he shall shut, and no one shall open. In Revelation 1, John writes, quoting the Lord Jesus, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades, of hell, and of death. And therefore, my friends, listen to Jesus and believe in Jesus for salvation and follow him all the days of your life. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And our Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit would take these words, these sober words, these serious words, and would apply them to each heart. Lord, work in our midst this day, we pray. And Lord, keep us from sin. Keep us from temptation. Keep us, O oh God, from hypocrisy. Enable us, O oh God, to live as we ought in the light of thy word, in the light of the gospel. And so, Lord, have mercy upon us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.